Blog Talk Radio. into this room at your own risk, because it leads to the future, not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. It is a system which has constricted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silent, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. I appeared before the Congressional Committee to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. A part of that plan, of course, is to induce the gradual surrender of American sovereignty, piece by piece and step by step, to various international organizations, of which the United Nations is the outstanding but far from the only example. The consequent willingness of the American people to allow the steps of appeasement by our government, which amount to a piecemeal surrender of the rest of the free world and of the United States itself. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision the U.N. Standard. I had planned another closing message, but I feel compelled to say what I'm about to say. Now, I risk sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but it's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. On the outskirts of the national capital today, black limousines with darkened windows converged on a hotel where private security guards imposed ironclad control. The limos carried royalty, political power brokers, and industrial titans to a secret meeting that will last all weekend. 
is known as the Bilderberg Group. Could their objective be world domination? Money from our treasury is now being spent for this effort. We will have a new currency and a new constitution modeled on the Soviet Union's constitution. Our rights will not be inalienable, but they will be granted by government who can also take them away. This is terrorism of the most worst kind, brought on you by our own government. The strongest, freest nation in the history of mankind will be averaged into world communism. Now we can see a new world coming into view. A world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order. It is a big idea. A new world order. A new world is emerging. It is a new world order. The new world order is emerging. A new world order can be created. A new world order. The 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 new world order. A new world order. And the hope that each of us has to build a new world order. I think even that, even that does not describe why the world has changed so much and why the world has turned so much towards a new world order and a new kind of civilization. France intends to proceed together with all people of goodwill around the world. This battle to build a new world order of the 21st century. It's about the future of Europe and a new world order. A new world order. The new world order new world order a new international order new global order is this some sort of a new world order which what gordon brown kind of alluded to god is setting up a new world order and his plan includes you in an era of globalization of political interdependence where the world is ever more swiftly opening up and the cliche about a global community becomes an economic, political, often social reality. In this new world, in this new world, British Prime Minister Brown today declared a new world order is emerging. We want to know what you think, so our poll question is, are you excited that a new world order is emerging? Or are you concerned about America's sovereignty? What is this new world order all about? It is about a reversal of the American Revolution. American Revolution was a bunch of farm kids and kids that get in working in blacksmith shops and working in other jobs, standing up to the greatest army on earth in places like Lexington and Concord and saying to the whole world that forever, no matter what happens, we Americans will decide here and decide for ourselves our own destiny. The new world order is the reversal the overturning of that revolution. That's what the end goal is. America is a rich province, part of their new world order. But I give you my word, if ever I stand up on that east wing of the Capitol and take my oath as President of the United States, when my hand goes up, their new world order comes crashing down. In the near future. All right, everybody, Joseph Gibson podcasting here. I understand the time in which we live today. 
Hope everybody's doing all right tonight. 7:37 p.m. on the East Coast here. Uh, I guess they're everybody's waiting for this uh, verdict to come in, huh? The uh, Kyle Wittenhouse verdict. I figured I'd do a show here if anybody uh, heard anything about that. Uh, I actually just got in, so I was just wondering if uh, anybody heard anything about that. Um, I guess there there'll be riots. I guess uh, the media's just hyping it up. I mean, they're just hyping it up. I mean. Uh, Oh, boy, I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, I'm trying to check and see if I got anything on that. But uh, the uh, Russians there finally made the corporate news media. Huh? We reported on it a few days ago about the Russians and Ukraine deal, and uh, the corporate news media finally picked up on it today, and they started reporting on it. And got a pretty good uh, division front there. China will go after Taiwan, and Russia is going to go into Ukraine, and no, we got we got uh, a lot of stuff here going on, so we'll see what happens. But uh, you know, we've we've been in this position before. We've seen the new world order how it plays out, and uh, I don't think that they they're fully capable of 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 doing what they can do right now. I mean, as far as uh, I heard, they Russia shot, shot a satellite out of space out of out of outer space. Also, I'm not too sure about that one, but I heard rumors about that one. So uh, I don't know. But uh, we've been in this situation before, so it all depends on how we handle, you know, the future and what happens. I mean, they could start a World War III. It could wipe out a billion people. I mean, the estimates, uh, according to studies and whatnot, and if there was a World War III with the weapons, weapons that we weapons, oh, boy, screwing up tonight. If the weapons that we have now at our disposal and the technology at the mass number of killings that they can do with the high-tech weapons that they do have, uh, they say the estimates that they could wipe a million people uh, on the planet. So uh, there was seven and a half billion people on the planet. So their goal of 500 million, they got a long way to go. But uh, this COVID thing, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's all depends. I mean, we don't know. They're not going to nuke their own planet, these new world order. They're not going to nuke their planet. And uh, destroy their planet. They won't do that unless they can get into outer space. Then they can. Then they would do it. And they're not quite there yet. They're not in outer space. They're living up there. They have their. Con- you know, Mars is not sustain. Cannot sustain uh, life. They found out. So uh, you know. So they 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 just don't have the the capability, and they can't go to the center of the Earth because that's where hell is supposedly. So uh, they tried that already too. So, uh, you know, they just, I, I don't know what the threat is to, we are to them, but I guess that's where the devil comes in, evil. You know, uh, the devil can't stand man because God, God's, God created man, and the devil can't stand God's creation. He's jealous. So, whatever God you believe in, but, you know. So, um, let's see here, what do we got here? Uh, there's a couple of news reports here, and. Go from there, and if anybody wants to call in, you can. I didn't promote the show too much here tonight. Globalists accelerate plan for worldwide corporate fascism. So, uh, let's see. Deep State launches martial law through judicial tyranny. That should be a good one. We'll go to that one right there first and see how that one goes. 
So you, we, we have a motion to recuse her in under, uh, that is to ask her to step off the case because it appears to us that she's no longer impartial, that in effect she's joined the plaintiff's team and we've lost confidence in her. She ruled on her own. Oh, no, I'm not going to recuse myself. You're not even entitled to a hearing. So last Friday night, we filed an appeal, an emergency appeal in the state Supreme Court asking them to uh, hear this. I don't know whether they will. Odds are they won't. Um, and, and Norm, you're great giving everybody happening at point blank range, but, but, but what about the 35,000 foot view? Owen was sued in Texas by the Sandy Hook crew, and, and he was defaulted, though he was never subpoenaed or ever deposed in Texas. That's unprecedented. They never asked for anything, and then he gets defaulted, and he's guilty too. I mean, I've talked to a bunch of lawyers, including you. This is, is that not next level? Yeah, it is next level. And, you know, Andy, and I'd like to correct your vocabulary. You're not, you haven't been found guilty of anything. You've been defaulted, which means they have, their liability, um, um, certain themes have been, will now be deemed to have been proven. But the Sandy Hook families still have to prove damages. And I do not want to come close to violating a court order and have to defend my law license again. And I'm not going to attack Judge Bellis personally. But I will say this much. In my opinion, there is no question in my mind that this litigation is intended to put you out of business, has been permitted to become a wholesale broadside attack on InfoWars and everything it stands for. And furthermore, I'll assert and hope that we get to trial on this. The plaintiffs do not have a coherent theory of damages. And as a matter of law, no jury should be permitted to hear based on what I've heard. And I can't tell you what it is. I can't even tell you what I've heard under these court orders because, you know, the, 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 plant, the, the Sandy Hook plaintiffs are given um, uh, privileged treatment in this case. Stay right there, Norm. Here's the bottom line. They've been defaming me. The whole thing's been uh, inaccurate. And now when it comes down to juries and it comes down to me being able to put on evidence, they can't have that. So now the First Amendment and all the other Bill of Rights has to go out the window, all because some big billionaires got behind and financed lawsuits against Alex Jones. And uh, that's Norm Pattis right there. I know Norm Pattis, actually. He was, uh, uh, he was with John R. Williams for a while in New Haven, Connecticut. And, uh, he went, and then he broke away from uh, John R. Williams and went out on his own. Norm Pattis, he's a good, he's a good lawyer. Um, it was Williams and Pattis there for a while. You could look it up, New Haven, Connecticut, Williams and Pattis. I, I had John R. Williams for a lawyer uh, back in 2000. So uh, with my case there when I was suing the state of North Car- state of North Carolina, Connecticut. So, uh, but uh, yeah, um, Norm Pattis, he's a good lawyer. But uh, you know, so uh, for him to be representing Alex Jones there, so that's something to be said. But um, you're guilty until proven innocent. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, UK announces new lockdown. Watch Chinese dictator. Uh, let's see, breaking uh, Fuji and Gates. Uh, Fauci, Fauci, Fuji, Fauci, Fuji. There we go. They admit uh, it's about. Let's see what they got to say about the uh, COVID. You know, we didn't have vaccines that block transmission. We got vaccines to help you with your health, but they only slightly reduce the transmissions. We need a new, a new way of doing the vaccine. We're starting to see. Waning immunity against infection and waning immunity in the beginning aspect against hospitalization. And if you look at Israel, Mm -hmm. which has always been a month to a month and a half ahead of us in the dynamics of the outbreak, 
in their vaccine response and in every other element of the outbreak. They are seeing a waning of immunity, not only against infection, but against hospitalizations and to some extent death, which is starting to now involve all age groups. So it was always going to work. It was 96% effective. You couldn't say that it had waning immunity or that it erased your immunity, and now he just admits it. And that's what it's all about. This is a cult saying, you're all sick, you're all evil, you're dirty, wear a mask. This is a cult saying, oh, you need four, five, six, seven, eight shots. Now Bill Gates says, oh, sorry, the vaccine didn't work. We got a new one coming out. And so did Fauci. I mean, have we figured this out yet? This is tyrannical corporate government using behavioral psychologists to try to take over the planet while they steal everybody's money and devalue the currency. When they use the term vaccine misinformation, they are using it as a euphemism for any statement that departs from official government policies and pharmaceutical industry profit-taking. It has nothing to do whether it's true or false. It only has to do with what the political implications are. And who is doing this censorship? It's government officials in league with Bill Gates, with Larry Ellison, with Mark Zuckerberg, with Sergey Brin from Google, and with all of these Internet titans. They have engineered not only the destruction of our democracy and our civil rights, but they have engineered the biggest shift of wealth in human history. It comes at the end of October every year and only runs for two weeks. It's executive branch, they have the Congress, they have most of the courts, and they have most of the cities, but they don't have the people that live in those cities. They've maintained their control through election fraud, and, and they know that. Victory. Florida school district ends mass mandate after eight-year-old girl told them they should be in prison. Palm Beach County School District has ended a mass mandate just days after a second-grade girl told school board officials they should all rot in jail for forcing children to wear face coverings against their will. As reported last week, eight-year-old Fiona Leshells of Tampa Bay was suspended almost 40 times for refusing to comply with the mandate which the school kept in place despite the state ending mass mandates in July and the governor prohibiting it by executive order. So here's what she had to say. And this young lady speaks for all of us because if the tyrants think they're going to silence Alex Jones or James O'Keefe or Tucker Carlson, they've got to stop the American people. Just like Trump always said, if, if you think they're just doing this because they hate me, you're wrong. They're coming after me because they want to get to you. But it's also the other way around. If they're able to basically get the American people, I'm up a creek as well. We're all in this together. And I sleep good at night knowing you're supporting us and you're praying for us and you're out there. And I want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for keeping us in the fight because that is our destiny. That is what I know I'm meant to do. I was born for this moment. We are alive in right now. And I want to be a champion for freedom. I want to be your champion. And I know I'm a sinner and I know I'm fallen. I know I'm not perfect. But I'm I'm, I'm telling you and I've proven that I'll do what I say I'm going to do and I'll do it the best of my ability. And I'll fall. I'll stumble. Hell, I'll, I'll sometimes blow a gasket. But I've got my soul pointed in the right direction. And I
1-800-357-383-0616. Let me play this from the Republic. Uh, this one right here. I forgot to play this a couple of uh, weeks ago, actually. Let me play this. specific question to ask you. Why do you think that you never are able to make any real changes for the better in Washington? It is because that corporation, the corporate U.S., is not yours. It belongs to someone else. It is a corporate government that has been put in place to manage you, not to represent you. That's a key point. How can a corporation represent you? The corporation is under control of somebody else and it's there to manage you, not to represent not to represent you. So it's it's not going to be able to do the job of a de jure government. One of the maxims of law, if you will, is that when a de jure stands up, whether it's a de jure grand jury, a de jure government, when it stands up, then the de facto must cease. So what I'm telling you today is that the de jure has stood up. The people across this country came together and did what was necessary to re-inhabit this republic. Now, during the Civil War time frame, President Lincoln and all the fighting that went on, well, the, the Union was preserved, but the Republic was not. Because soon thereafter, in the 1871 time frame, Congress began to pass legislation that was not lawful. They set up a corporation in Washington. And not only that, they passed legislation that would populate that corporation with persons. My fellow Americans, I'm here to tell you about the Republic, your Republic for the United States of America. In 2010, a miracle happened. Americans from all walks of life banded together and reclaimed our Republic form of government. This is not to be confused with Republican, Democrat, or any other form of political party. Your Republic for the United States of America is already functioning in a lawful, interim and parallel capacity. Lawful because it has been re-inhabited peacefully and lawfully. Interim because it's functioning in a limited capacity since the American people are not yet represented in mass and because permanent elections have not yet been held. Parallel because it has not replaced the corporate United States but is functioning alongside the current government structure. This was lawfully accomplished in order to restore our rights our liberties, and our freedoms as Americans. If you want more from your government, if you want to be truly free for the first time in your life, 
If you want your children to enjoy true freedom, then I'm asking you and everyone you know to embrace our long-lost liberties and support your republic. Imagine a country where most of your hard-earned money is yours to keep. Imagine seeing 2% inflation over the next 50 years, like it was when America was founded. Imagine your rights, freedoms, and privacy enforced and upheld in courts. Imagine if it was unlawful for anyone to profit from your private information without your written permission. The injustices we endure today are nearly endless. Imagine all of them gone. Imagine politicians actually answering to you. Yes, you heard me correctly. I said answer you. Not just hearing your voice and ignoring it, but listening and acting on law, not personal agendas. Just imagine going to the polls and having your vote make a difference. Imagine your inherent rights being preserved by government, a government committed to protecting and defending our founding documents. Our founding fathers had a dream of being free, and I believe Americans are still yearning to be free today. You and I are working together and turn that dream, our dream, into reality once again. I believe the American people have the courage to take back their freedom. So let's work together to make the world a better place to live. May God bless you and God bless America. All right, everybody. Joseph Gibson podcasting here, understanding the times in which we live today. All right. Those of you who don't understand that message, of course, we've had the Republic on here many, many times. We had uh, Mr. Carpenter on here in the past, and, uh, you know, and, and that's basically the truth right there. You know, that's the only way you're going to stop World War III. That's the only way you're going to stop the heinous crimes that are happening right now across the board by a, corporate, a D.C. corporate machine that has only one interest, and that's the profiteering of the international bankers and the Federal Reserve Bank. You know, and the, the lip service they provide and they can say all they want and and pretend all they want, but you know it. You know, deep down inside, you know that you don't have a voice out there. You are a slave. You don't have rights. You have to fight like hell just to get a crumb at the, at, the, at the table, even if they let you in the room where the table is and the food's being served, <laughs> okay? So I just don't know how, how else, any other way to, to put it, but the people that listen to this podcast show, you know where to go. You know, you got to get on. Um, I'm, I'm going to run for public office in my state. Uh, for my district, but I'm going to uh, I'm going to of course be a part of the de facto. But I will will propose I will let's put it this way I will propose that the republic be restored, and that the de facto corporation cease. I will propose legislation that abolishes the statutory laws that we have right now in place, and we get back to common law and common sense. And that's and I'm sure many of the people in Carolina. Uh, would would embrace that idea because it has. But then again, there's a there's two sides to the coin. You have a, a population that is ignorant. They're dumbed down, morally bankrupt. They don't have any type of education. They're stubborn. They believe that their way is the right way, and everyone has their individual battles, and their battles going to come first. 
even if it's even if it's setting aside freedom and sacrificing freedom. You heard last night me interview a store clerk, and you heard, I'm going to do what I'm told. I'm going to do what I'm told. That's it. Uh, we, we, we're not going to have that discussion. And that, that's what you have out there today. That's what you have. Whether he may be right or wrong, he's going to do what he's told. So when he's told, stand down, your next-door neighbor is going off to the camp or what have you, he's going to stand down. He's not going to come to the aid of his brothers and sisters, his Americans, because we're all – we don't we, – we're not going to come to the aid of our neighbor. Our neighbors are not our concern anymore, Right? That's how we live today. We don't care about our neighbor. We don't care about anybody else but except our own little bubbles, our own little world. We don't care. And and that and you have the distra- and that's a fact. And that's the, the double-edged sword here, is that a republic can't survive with that type of populace, with that type of population. It cannot survive because you have an immoral people. You have people that are out robbing, stealing, cheating, conniving. Immoral lifestyles, don't respect family, don't respect marriage, the institution of marriage, don't respect themselves. They only care about me, 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 me. And, 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 and it's not all the blame on the people because the system was designed to brainwash people to believe that way and think that way from birth. Through the schools, the elementary school, to the middle school, to the high school, to the universities. And then they chased that phony dream. Paying off their student debts, and, and they go out and and, wanna, and before you know it, you wake up and you're 60 years old. And uh, what do you got? What have you done in your life? Are you happy? Are you happy that you fulfilled? I mean, what that you fulfilled? What everything? Your dreams? Did you live the life you wanted to really live? Did, I mean, it, I mean, because we could all sit back and say the world is a screwed up place. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah. Well, do something about it. You know, and and that's that's the message there that we try to bring to the people here on this podcast show, understanding the times in which we live today. I mean, I just don't know how else to say it or or propose it to to the people. I mean, you know, so just see what happens, and uh, let's hope we don't they don't guide us into World War Three, because man, they are marching us to World War Three very fast. And if that happens, man, all hell's gonna hit, break loose on this planet. You know, and I don't know about this Bible stuff and, you know, the pastors out there because you can't really trust them anymore because they're lost. I mean, the messages that they preach, is, I mean, they're all out for the money. They're all out for the money and their church buildings and their nice cars and their fancy suits. I mean, you know, they, they, they don't get up and go to work every day, so they don't know what it's like to be out there in the trenches, you know. They, all they are is lip service. So, uh, you know, but... Uh, Six five seven three three zero six one six. Press number one if you want to join in here tonight um, and join in the conversation. Um, like I said, usually when I don't put the show link out there, it's, I, I, I was probably I wanted to have a guest on tonight. I saw something on local news media. I wanted to bring him on. He's a small business owner, and he was on the news talking about how they have a monopoly on the contracts that they give out to small businesses. And man, I wanted to get him on here, and I didn't do it. I didn't follow up follow up with him, and I could have got him on. So, but uh, let me take a quick uh, break here and uh, line up a couple of news stories. We'll have a short podcast here tonight, providing we don't get any talking points here, people calling in. Um, and then we'll go from there, okay?
fighting soldiers from the sky. Fearless men who jump and die. President recognizes Mr. Adams of Massachusetts. Objects of the most stupendous magnitude. Measures which will affect the lives of millions, born and unborn, are now before us. We must expect a great expense of blood to obtain them. But we must always remember that a free constitution of civil government cannot be purchased at too dear a rate as there is nothing on this side of Jerusalem of greater importance to mankind. My worthy colleague from Pennsylvania spoken with great ingenuity and eloquence. He has given you a grim prognostication of our national future, but where he foresees apocalypse, I see hope. I see a new nation ready to take its place in the world. Not an empire, but a republic and a republic of laws, not men. Gentlemen, we are in the very midst of revolution, the most complete, unexpected, and remarkable of any in the history of the world. How few of the human race have ever had an opportunity of choosing a system of government for themselves, and the children. I am not without apprehensions, gentlemen. But the end we have in sight is more than worth all the means. I believe, sirs, that the hour has come. My judgment approves this measure, and my whole heart is in it. All that I have, all that I am, and all that I hope in this life, I am now ready to stake upon it. While I live, let me have a country. A free country. All right, everybody, Joseph Gibson Podcasting here. Let's uh, do uh, the true history of America here. We'll do this one here. Uh, somebody wanted this uh, somewhere to talk about that, so let me do that here. I'll watch the car, call board. Anybody wants to chip in, you can. Uh, 657-383-0616, press number one. Into the Capitol. I would manure the hills of Arlington with fragments of his body, for he is senator or chief magistrate of my native state. It is my duty to suppress insurrection. My duty. This siege of the Capitol and coming war was for Lincoln 
not merely a conflict between the North and the South, but a world war against the British Empire. Now, in 1861, 
A great war was imminent, pivoted on whether the British or the American system would prevail in the Western Hemisphere. Lincoln knew that he was going into a war. The key of Lincoln, the character of Lincoln, going into the inauguration and through his presidency, was he was on the front lines of a war against the British Empire. And he knew it. He was being shot at. So obviously he was assassinated. But there were many attempts against him, as if he was a soldier in the battle. But it was his ideas, it was his mind, which drove the victory over the South. That was why he was the number one target. In Lincoln, because of the nature of the conflict over slavery, he very much always came back to the Declaration of Independence. That this, for, for, for I think any, uh, any of the uh, great figures in the United States, the Declaration and the Constitution are one piece. So Lincoln rested on all men are created equal and have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That these are inalienable rights. And they, they are embedded in every individual human being, that there is no difference. On his trip to Washington for the inauguration, Lincoln was notified of an assassination plot laid for him at a scheduled stop in Baltimore, Maryland. Now, when he passed through Philadelphia, after having been informed of this plot, he stood right here on the spot and participated in a flag-raising ceremony on the morning of February 22, 1861. I have never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. I have often pondered over the dangers which were incurred by the men who assembled here and adopted that Declaration of Independence. I have pondered over the toils that were endured by the officers and soldiers of the army who achieved that independence. I have often inquired of myself what principle or idea it was that kept this confederacy so long together. It was not the mere matter of the separation of the colonies from the motherland, but something in that declaration giving liberty not alone to the people of this country, but hope to the world for all future time. It was that which gave promise that in due time the weight should be lifted from the shoulders of all men and that all should have an equal chance. This is the sentiment embodied in that declaration of independence. Now, my friends, can this country be saved upon that basis? If it can, I will consider myself one of the happiest men in the world if I can help to save it. If it can't be saved upon that principle, it will truly be awful. But if this country cannot be saved without giving up that principle, I was about to say, I would rather be assassinated on this spot than to surrender it. Lincoln is very specifically an example of a conscious figure of history that he is acting as a figure of history. His motive is that. His immediate predecessor, there are many predecessors for Lincoln's thought, and in a case like his, there are always things that you may overlook which are important. But the key thing is, he was a, his impetus, which led to his presidency, was John Quincy Adams. The policy was, we have a Canadian border, we have a Mexican border, we have an Atlantic Ocean, we have a Pacific Ocean. These are us. This is our nation. We have to develop this territory for this nation in this territory. And our destiny, implicitly with him, but for us, is our destiny is, is across the Pacific. As the Columbus crossed the Atlantic, we must cross the Pacific 
to liberate the people on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, in the sense of engaging them as our partners against the European oligarchy. That was the policy. So that's Lincoln's policy. The British oligarchy knew that Lincoln represented this mission to destroy them. That is why, upon his election, they had to stop him from being inaugurated. Now, when the carriage itself that was supposed to be carrying Lincoln passed through Baltimore, there was an enormous riot plan that was supposed to go off, trigger a certain amount of chaos, and there were planted assassins in the crowd who were going to stab Lincoln to death. Of course, when the, when the stagecoach rolled through, the riot began, but Lincoln was not in the stage. Lincoln was ready in Washington, D.C. I hold that in contemplation of universal law and of the Constitution, the union of these states is perpetual. Perpetuity is implied, if not expressed, in the fundamental law of all national governments. It is safe to assert that no government proper ever had a provision in its organic law for its own termination. Descending from these general principles, we find the proposition that in legal contemplation, the Union is perpetual, confirmed by the history of the Union itself. The Union is much older than the Constitution. It was, in fact, by the Articles of Association in 1774. It was matured and continued by the Declaration of Independence in 1776. It was further matured in the face of all the then 13 states expressly plighted and engaged that it should be perpetual by the Articles of Confederation in 1778. And finally, in 1787, one of the declared objects for ordaining and establishing the Constitution was to form a more perfect union. But if destruction of the union by one or by part only of the states be lawfully possible, the union is less perfect than before the Constitution, having lost the vital element of perpetuity. It follows from these views that no state upon its own mere motion can lawfully get out of the union that resolves and ordinances to that effect are legally void, and that acts of violence within any state or states against the authority of the United States are insurrectionary or revolutionary according to circumstances. One month after Lincoln's inauguration, the Southern Rebellion began. The Confederate Army received huge support from Palmerston's British Empire throughout the war. However, Lincoln defeated the Confederacy by reviving the superior moral principle and industrial might of the nation. Even amidst civil war, Lincoln advanced the unity of the United States as with his launching of a transcontinental rail project and encouragement of settlement by immigrants of lands west of the Mississippi. Two days after the surrender of the Confederacy in April of 1865, Lincoln spoke on his policy for bringing the South back into the Union as if they had never left. Only three days after that, Lincoln was assassinated. The trigger man, John Wilkes Booth, was no lone gunman. Booth had been recruited to the assassination plot years earlier through a nest of Palmerston agents in British Canada, such as George Sanders, a paid operative of the British Empire's Hudson Bay Company, and John Surratt, a regular agent of the London-based Confederate Secret Service. The federal government itself identified this, convicting eight people and hanging four, on the charge of conspiring with these and other agents harbored in British Canada. However, these principal British, such as Surratt and Sanders, although wanted by the federal government, 
fled to safety in Great Britain. The Lincoln murder was a desperate British reaction to the defeat of their century-long strategy for dissolution of the United States. But instead of the United States dissolving into chaos, Lincoln's ideas became more powerful through his death. Because of Lincoln, the transcontinental unity of the nation would be achieved a few short years later. But also the living power of the U.S. Constitution and Declaration of Independence emerged over empire as a power in the world. In the eyes of foreign nations, the young United States, previously only a daring experiment in law and government, now had validated its principles. Through individuals like Henry C. Carey, who had been Lincoln's economic advisor, the United States underwent the most rapid industrialization and economic growth of a country that humanity had ever seen. This development was driven by economic policies explicitly against British free trade, such as the highest tariffs in the history of the U.S. These tariffs banished the British Empire's cheap slave labor goods from American markets, allowing manufacturing, infrastructure building, and population growth to steam ahead. British free trade industrial monopoly, and human slavery travel together. And the man who undertakes the work of reconstruction without having first satisfied himself that such is certainly the fact, will find that he has been building on shifting sands and must fail to produce an edifice that will be permanent. Look where you may, you will find prosperity to exist in the inverse ratio of the connection with Britain. As Kerry wrote, everywhere where British free trade was implemented, it destroyed people, it destroyed food supply, it destroyed resources, it destroyed soil, it destroyed what civilization might have existed. You bring in British free trade, what's left? Destruction. Protecting the development of your population, your core capabilities, agriculture, industry, and so on, that's protectionism. So when you look at this, no country has ever developed without protection. None. Not any country in Europe. Not anywhere. On May 10th, 1869, the last spike in the transcontinental line was driven. For the first time, the historic mission of the U.S. project was met. A nation unified through manufactures and infrastructure from east to west, north to south. Think about this. This is after a four-year-long civil war tearing apart the United States. Half a, half a million human beings killed, uh, an equivalent number, a huge amounts wounded, maimed for life. You'd think that the nation would have been crippled for a long time to come after this, as the British intended. This nation came out of the Civil War with a type of unity and a type of economic development that the world had never seen. We became a world's leading power economically within 10 years, 15 years of the Civil War. In 1876, Henry Carey organized the U.S. Centennial Celebration, inviting the world to see how Republican principles had transformed the youngest nation on earth into the most prosperous. Nine million visitors attended, including official foreign delegations composed of scientists, engineers, economists, and industrialists. What these observers saw was the opening of an incredibly vast new field of human potential such as had never existed in the world before that point. Amidst the awesome array of drill presses, saws, printers, water pumps, and more, sat Henry Carey's literature stand of books and pamphlets, educating visitors on the virtues of the American system of economics.
The American system of economics values the creative powers of the human individual far above any other form of material wealth. Further, it recognizes these creative powers as the very source of that material wealth. While the British Empire fights for control of the so-called natural resources of the environment, the American system's power comes simply by the recognition that the nature of the human species was to be the one living creature on the planet which had no natural resources outside of its members' own sovereign ability to create them. All creation is a mine, and every man a miner. In the beginning, the mine was unopened, and the miner stood naked and knowledgeless upon it. Fishes, birds, beasts, and creeping things are not miners, but feeders and lodgers merely. Beavers build houses, but they build them in no wise differently, or better now, than they did 5,000 years ago. Man is not the only animal who labors, but he is the only one who improves his workmanship. This improvement he affects by discoveries and inventions. That's the entire experience of the human, of the, of, of a person, of mankind, is you, you're, you're directly related to ideas. Because of that, you become the only interface for ideas to manifest themselves in physical reality. To make a discovery of principle, a discovery of something that exists that's true in the universe, and then to force the physical universe to respond to that invisible, invisible principle, to respond to that idea. The human economy exists within a universe organized by this dynamic ability of man to willfully change nature. It's not like an animal. We have a power of the animals. This is what we call true creativity. The ability to discover universal principles and use these to change the universe. Only mankind can do that. Only the human individual mind can do that. No animal can do it. To create something entirely unique and new, something original in the entire course of, of what's been discovered so far in the course of humanity, that capacity exists in every single human individual. And the idea that every single individual has that potential is lovely and exciting to us. In opposition to the American system, the British Empire treats the power of human insight as a threat to its power. With empire, there is no divine spark of human reason which profoundly transforms nature. With empire, man is only a different form of cattle. Thus, the oligarch system must cease to exist, for it works against the laws of nature and the human mind. You can contrast the North and the South in the United States. The, lack of in, the utter lack of industrial development and then the just backwardness, living in the swamps, state of existence that you had in the South of the United States was a direct product of their view of man. It was a direct, a direct product of the fact that you've got, that you can't, uh, a slave society is incapable of this kind of, the, the kind of feudal society you had in the South is incapable of creative discovery. In the wake of the Centennial Convention, teams of American military engineers, economists, and diplomats carried the American system of economics back over the Atlantic and the Pacific 
consciously seeking the end to the British Empire system of world domination. In Russia, American railroad engineers worked with Russian transportation minister Count Sergei Vita, Dmitry Mendeleev, and others to organize a system of high tariffs and construction of the Trans-Siberian Rail Project modeled on Lincoln's American Transcontinental. The very first locomotive on this Trans-Siberian was built in Philadelphia by the Baldwin Company. By 1890, the Russians were planning a Bering Strait bridge to connect by rail to America. In France, heavy tariffs were instituted, along with an expansion of rail. French Foreign Minister Gabriel Hanateau developed plans for the development of the Nile River area of Africa and for a railway Russian Trans-Siberian project. In Japan, E. Pishine Smith, a close collaborator of Henry Carey, traveled to Japan's Meiji court to shape the rapid transformation of the country into a modern industrial power. The Japanese became a leading American ally in Asia, creating the first ever independent national bank on that continent. In China, where the British had unloaded crates of opium, American Civil War engineers unloaded crates of Baldwin locomotives. Kerry ally Horton Barker worked with the Chinese emperor's circles for the creation of a joint Chinese-American bank to fund telegraph lines, rail, and industrial mining. And in Germany, the American system reached its greatest application anywhere outside the United States through the actions of Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, who had been an ally of the American system from the days of his youth. Bismarck himself had been a close friend of some of the American students who had been explicitly sent over by John Quincy Adams to study at Göttingen, at Jena, at Berlin, to basically study universal history as it was taught by Schiller and by the von Humboldts. Three years after the American centennial, Bismarck broke Germany's free trade system, implementing an American-inspired tariff policy for Germany. The kinship between Germany and the U.S. became so strong at this time that Republican congressman and Civil War veteran William McKinley quoted Bismarck's speech German tariff from the floor of the U.S. Congress. The success of the United States in material development is the most illustrious of modern time. The American nation has not only successfully borne and suppressed the most gigantic and expensive war of all history, but immediately afterward disbanded its army, found employment for all its soldiers and marines, paid off most of its debt, given labor and homes to all the unemployed of Europe as fast as they could arrive within its territory, and still by a system of taxation so indirect as not to be perceived, much less felt. Because it is my deliberate judgment that the prosperity of America is mainly due to its system of protective laws, I urge that Germany has now reached that point where it is necessary to imitate the tariff system of the United States. Under this policy, just as had occurred in the United States, Germany emerged as a national on the world stage. Bismarck's circles, in collusion with French industrialists, began planning rail links to the Trans-Siberian system of Russia and the construction of a Berlin to Baghdad rail system to create a new, previously non-existent trade route to all corners of the world.
threatened world leadership of the British East India Company based itself on a relationship between control of the world's sea routes and enforced underdevelopment of interior land masses. The acquisition of strategic naval ports, or choke points, marked here in red, was the pivot of the system. By controlling these ports and corresponding sea lanes, the British dominated trade, using colonies such as India or African nations as sources of cheap raw materials and labor. Other nations wishing to engage in the same geographical area would have to operate through the British. The transcontinental rail projects of the post-Civil War period, therefore, emphasizing interior development of land masses, such as Lincoln's American Transcontinental, Sergei Vito's Trans-Siberian, and Bismarck's Berlin-Baghdad system, were a mortal threat to the All right, all right. Joseph Gibson podcasting here. Let me check the phone boards here. Apologize if people had to wait for a long time, but uh, let me connect my caller here. Go ahead there. Hey, Mr. Gibson, how are you, sir? Yes. Going all right. How are you? That's really some good information. You know, I'm amazed about uh, the Transcontinental Railroad that was built here in the United States with all the players and so forth. But, you know, the Trans-Siberian, and they were using steam locomotives. Man, you kind of wonder how they kept those bad boys from freezing. In <laughs> I know, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's 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 interesting. That's interesting, especially over there. If they brought them over there to China, you know, and different climates and whatnot. So I'm wondering. You know, that's yeah. That's a good question. Huh. I have to look into that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm you're making me work harder that. than I have to work here. <laughs> oh my goodness! But no, that's you know you talk about history. That's history that needs to be taught. Uh, because it talks about the cooperation, it talks about the, the vision, and it talks about the perseverance and dedication that was put forth. Because I know it was. I've studied the Transcontinental Railroad here in the United States, and uh, that wasn't no easy feat. But I tell you, a lot of yeah. a lot of a lot of business people got rich off of it, but uh, they got it done. Yes, they sure did. <laughs> mm-hmm. They sure did. You know, especially you know, but uh, but. You're absolutely right. This this history is not taught. You see, what they what they they wouldn't touch upon that subject at all in schools today. It would only be about if they as soon as the Civil War is talked about, it would be talked of slavery. That's it. And the South, you know, how it oppressed the slaves. That's it. And uh, as far as the Revolutionary War goes, well, you know, the, the Indians, how they were slaughtered. You know, and that was that was yeah, that's how they teach kids nowadays. You know, and that's what the history is all. You'd be surprised. It's just terrible. It's terrible. And you're right. This needs to be taught. I mean, and this is one of the things that I would propose here, and if I run for office, well, I am running for office, but if I was elected, I would try to change our uh, our, our educational system where we, we have to we have to have true history. You know, the the engagement of history uh, needs to go away. The, the we have to expose the true history that hasn't been taught to us. We have to learn. We have to have our youth learn new things. You know, that that things that we weren't taught, or or maybe you were taught, or I was taught, maybe it will briefly, but things that are not taught today, and we're not we're fading out when you and I were going to school. You know, I tell you, it's so much good history. I even remember how they stopped Sherman at Kennesaw Mountain. And that was civilians that did that. They got their rifles. And guess what? There's five cities in the United States where it's required 
that homeowners have guns, and one of them is Kennesaw, which is right outside of Atlanta. Really? Kennesaw. Wow. Yes. Do wow. you know that? You got Kennesaw, you got Nelson, Georgia, you got Gun Barrel City, Texas, you got Kuna, Colorado, and one other I can't think of the name of. You sure it's only five? And or, or the or the now cause I'm, maybe I'm getting confused with the sanctuary city or sanctuary counties thing, you know, because you have sanctuary counties across, uh, like for instance here in North Carolina, like for instance my county is a sanctuary county, and so they can't make. Oh, can't see, but yours is that's that's of late. I'm talking about these ordinances go back before the problems that we've been experiencing here lately, and uh, they require that homeowners have you know, guns, have a gun in the house. <clears throat> now, if there's no penalty, I don't think, if you don't, but it's on the ordinances, and I guess it's based on what, uh, you know, longstanding experience. You know, one other thing I want to say to you, I'm let you get back to your, your video. Sure. The, what I see the uh, National Guard command in Oklahoma, when you say that they're gonna, not going to require the guard members to be vaccinated. That's what more uh-huh. states need to do. Yeah. More states need yeah. to do that. Yeah, you're correct. And, uh, hey, you, real quick. You know the reason why. Oh, go, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Finish your point. I, but I want, I want to ask you, I want to tell you something that I that I, I, I don't think I told you, actually, about history or something, about an old law that freaks people out. But go ahead. Go ahead. Go, finish your point. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, there was a law. I remember it was uh, back, it was back in 1995. I looked it up. And uh, it was uh, it, all inmates who were released from uh, jail. Uh, I looked it up in 1995, but this is a law that goes back, obviously, to the 1800s. Any inmate that was any any uh, person that was imprisoned or arrested or held in jail, once they're released, they were had to be given uh, a, a pouch of tobacco and be issued a fresh firearm, uh, a pistol, a, re- a revolver, or a rifle. It, it was your choice. So you had, so you, <laughs> you know hmm. because, so you got you got you got a patch of tobacco and and a revolver or or, 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 a, or a rifle you know whatever it was your choice whatever you know because you if you sat in jail for I think it was for longer than thirty days because you know you had to, your horse was no good after that or something I forgot what it was a long time ago I read this law but that law remained on the books actually and I wrote to a state legislator and I told him I said hey you know. Uh, I, yeah, I bet most of the inmates in jail here don't know about this uh, this law, you know. And they, she looked it up, and she was like, uh, she, "Well, I'll be damned," because you know. And and if you want, you know, obviously, I don't know if you asked for, tried to enforce that law, what would happen? But they would have to obey it, right? I mean, I, you know, I, I yeah, it's still on the books <laughs> in, in effect. That yeah. would be a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think they've repealed it since then, but uh, you know, but you'd be surprised. You start dusting off old laws from all the, uh, the bookshelves and whatnot. You'd be surprised what you find. You know that that can be used as a tool to, for victory in a lot of things that people are standing up against today. You know. Well, yeah, because today they don't allow felons to uh, have weapons. Isn't that something yep. else? Well, in yep. most states, and I'm for states being able to set the tone of uh, what they can do and what they can't do when it comes down to everything. I think that uh, this issue on abortion should go back to the states, not the federal government. And, you know, here's another thing, too. People don't understand, too many don't, that it's the states that control the federal government. That's where their power comes from. The states give them, uh, let them use that power, and if they don't use it right, they got the ability to take it back from them. 
That's correct. That's correct. Real quick, real quick, what do you think this Kyle Wittenhouse uh, trial there? What do you think? Not guilty or guilty? Well, Joe, you, Joe, Joseph, you know, I, I'm saying he's not guilty. He had every reason to do what he done. Every obstacle, every excuse that's thrown up there is uh, been beaten down. He, you know, people say he didn't have no business being in the state. He did. His father lived there. So it's, yep. uh, the thing that scares, well, the thing we need to be concerned that if it goes the wrong way, then what they would do in the future is say that you don't have the right to use a lethal force in order to protect yourself. That's I say right. that you should be able to use lethal force to protect your property. And I'm going to tell you why. And you remember this. The L.A. riots, did not the Koreans use lethal force to protect their property? Yeah, yeah, I remember them shooting that. Yeah, I remember them. Remember those videos? You, you, yeah. you're pointing a gun at the, you know, yeah, I remember that. Yep. Absolutely. So this crap, but you can't use lethal force to protect your property. Only you as a human being is a bunch of hogwash. That's just not true. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, man, That's, go ahead uh, and finish your show. Yeah, all right. All right, thanks, thanks All for right. calling and appreciate it. Uh, anybody else who mm-hmm. missed uh, missed there, uh, I apologize for that. But I check the board from time to time. Let me finish up this uh, little clip here, and then uh, we'll wrap up the podcast here. Historic maritime-based power of the British Empire. We were aggressively promoting the American system, and the British at that point decided that the only thing that they could do to prevent the successful spread of the American system and the build-up of these rail connections and the land bridge across Eurasia was to blow up the world. Literally, they were losing the chess game badly, and so their only last option was to kick over the chessboard. Under this geopolitical view, British imperial policy toward the end of the 19th century turned to the creation of a great world war pivoted on pitting Russia and Germany against each other. The intention of this policy was not for any nation to come out as the victor, but rather for all nations involved to be destroyed. In Germany, Bismarck was conscious of this geopolitical strategy. In correspondence, he wrote about his nightmare of coalitions, that alliance of France, Russia, and Britain, which would encircle Germany and destroy her in war and economic ruin. Bismarck was committed to alliances which allowed for Germany to develop, but he also understood that these alliances required uh, the benefit of the other. That is that the unification of Germany occurred in a war against France and Austria, but he was willing to form an alliance with Austria. He had his own alliance with France because he realized that if he were at war with these countries, Germany wouldn't be able to develop. So his commitment to the three Kaiser League, the alliance with Russia, the alliance with Austria, that wasn't popular with some of the the smaller German states that were incorporated in Germany. But Bismarck's argument was that this policy created the best potential for Germany to develop its industry, to increase its markets, and to have peace. He also negotiated with the Russian Tsar secretly, behind the back of his own Kaiser, to, because the Kaiser was going to agree with the Kaiser of Austria, this old fart there, still the emperor, in a Balkan war. 
the Balkan War involved Slavic peoples, which were part of the Orthodox Church network, as the Russians were part of the Orthodox network. So it was an attempt by the British to organize another religious war between Orthodox and others, as Western and Eastern Christianity. He knew you don't do that. So he entered into a secret agreement, he did, behind the back of his Kaiser, two Kaisers, the first Kaiser and the second one, with Willem I and Willem II, who was a completely British fool, and said that he would sabotage any attempt to support Austria in a Balkan war. So as long as he was in power, the war couldn't go off because the British plan was to have Russia and France attack Germany at the same time and to use the Habsburg-Balkan War as a trigger for that purpose. So no, let's sabotage it. Bismarck's insight and diplomatic skill thwarted all British attempts to pit Germany against Russia in war. His understanding of how European powers were manipulated by the British and his counter-policy of alliances with nations for peace meant that for a British-orchestrated World War seed, Bismarck had to be eliminated. During these years, Prince Edward Albert, the protege of Lord Palmerston and the son of Queen Victoria, made himself dictator of British foreign policy. For the next 20 years, he would personally oversee the elimination of all obstacles to the creation of a nightmare of coalitions, beginning with Otto von Bismarck. His greatest weapon in his work was not the gunboat, but insight into turning the vices and weaknesses of individuals into the most destructive weapons against them. The removal of Bismarck began with the use of one of Edward's greatest allies, his in-depth knowledge of the personal defects of his nephew, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany. Edward Albert, and partly is able to operate through this insane oligarchical royal family system, where, you know, the Tsar of Russia, the Kaiser of Germany, they're all part of his family. They're all offshoots of Queen Victoria. You know, when you think of an oligarchy, you got a termite mound. With the Queen termite, this gigantic blob about 20 times the size of her consort, pumping out eggs. And every, every other termite is there to aid the Queen in her eggs. When you have a bunch of noblemen who intermarry, you have family connections, but you also weaken the bloodline, so to speak. And so you had these figures like Kaiser William II, very inferior intellect, very much influenced by the pomp and circumstance of the empire. Uh, Kaiser William II, I think in 15 years, had 37 design changes in the costumes of the Imperial Guard. He loved parades, but he was also desirous of, of flattery. He was very insecure. And so a court around him started saying from the moment he emerged, you can't be like Frederick the Great, his ancestor, if you have a Bismarck running policy. Under orders from Prince Edward Albert, Kaiser Wilhelm ousted Bismarck from the German Chancellorship in 1890. This event marked the beginning of World War I. The long fuse of the British Empire's attack on the American system was now lit. After his ouster, Bismarck foretold the great coming war. For my part, I am no longer under any obligations towards the personalities now in office or towards my successor. All the bridges have been broken down. The tide, which used to connect us with Russia, 
have been severed. Personal authority and confidence are lacking in Berlin. If the country is well ruled, the coming war may be averted. If it is badly ruled, that war may become a seven years war. Prince Edward Albert and his sycophants now unleashed hell on earth. The nightmare coalition of Russia, France, and Britain, which Bismarck had worked to prevent, Edward now sought to create. Every nation in Europe and Asia which had responded to the state successes would be targeted for destruction. In 1894, French President Sari Carnot was assassinated. Edward's Anglophile circles within the weakened French government then launched the Dreyfus scandal. This involved the fraudulent conviction of French Army Captain Alfred Dreyfus of Jewish-German descent as a traitor. This scandal would continue for 12 years, giving birth to an anti-German and anti-Semitic right-wing turn in France. Temporarily overcoming his known disdain for the yellow races, Edward Albert and his sons, through continuous official visits to Japan, personally organized the brainwashing of the Emperor Meiji of Japan. Albert, as he had also done with Wilhelm, preyed on Japan's island mythology. You are an island in Asia, just as we are an island in Europe. As we rule over Europe, you shall rule over Asia. With England's help, Japan will become a great naval power. Under this direction, Japan's war against China in 1894, using its largely British-built navy, and grabbing huge tracts of Chinese territory where U.S. and Russian industrialists had hoped to build critical links for the Trans-Siberian Rail Line. Although the advances achieved in the wake of Lincoln's Civil War victory were being quickly crushed in Europe and Asia, the United States remained at this time a stronghold of power and independence against the British Empire. Under newly elected president and Lincoln devotee William McKinley, economic and political progress were charging forward. McKinley's commitment to the continuation of the U.S. policy against free trade were more explicit than any United States president had ever made them. Thirty years of protection has brought us to the first rank in agriculture, in mining, and in manufacturing development. We lead all nations in these three great departments of industry. We have outstripped even the United Kingdom, which had centuries the start of us. Her fiscal policy for 50 years past has been the free trade revenue tariff policy of the Democrats. Ours, for 31 years, the protective tariff policy of the Republicans. Tried by any test, measured by any standard, we lead all the rest of the world. Protection had vindicated itself. McKinley immediately adopted a tariff policy, a protectionist policy, that had the British freaked out. In fact, the British sent key operatives over to the United States to work in 1896 in the campaign against McKinley. McKinley's election was a major obstacle to the British Empire's promotion of free trade and war. In an explicit revival of John Quincy Adams' Monroe Doctrine policy, McKinley embraced the International American Conference's proposal for extension of the U.S. railway system through Mexico to the tip of South America. This project, if completed in conjunction with the Russian plans for a Bering Strait rail link, would make it possible by the beginning of the 20th century 
to travel from Western Europe to the southern cone of the Western Hemisphere by rail. But when McKinley's vice president died in 1899, British Allied bankers seized the opportunity. Teddy Roosevelt was forced on as McKinley's new vice president for the next election. Teddy Roosevelt was as far as one could get from a Lincoln Republican. A sworn Anglophile, his love for the British Empire and its system of racial hierarchy were due to two key individuals. One was his uncle, James Dunworthy Bullock, who, during the Civil War, had served in England as the head of the Confederate Secret Service. Bullock procured the entire Confederate Navy, which destroyed Union ships and blockades of the South, prolonging the war. Teddy Roosevelt considered Bullock one of his personal heroes and traveled to meet his exiled uncle in England in 1886 to be tutored on naval war strategy. American trader Alfred Thayer Mahan, author of The Influence of Sea Power on History, was the other major influence on Teddy Roosevelt. Mahan frequented the Royal Societies and Clubs of Prince Edward Albert's England, promoting their new post-Civil War vision of an Anglo-American naval empire. Mahan's leading proponent in the United States was Theodore Roosevelt. When Mahan's book was published, very few people read it. Roosevelt bought up as many copies as he could and distributed it throughout the, the uh, Congress, to the Navy, to key people. McKinley continued to organize the transcontinental rail project despite Teddy Roosevelt and his British allies in the White House. Six months into his second term, he delivered a rousing speech to the Pan-American Conference in Buffalo to 50,000 North and South Americans. The next day, McKinley was murdered by an anarchist, deployed by the same Emma Goldman anarchist networks which had killed President Carnot of France seven years previous. As Goldman would later admit, it was London that was the base of operations for her international terrorist movement. The killing of McKinley, which was done by the British, was, was done by, uh, but it was to get rid of him. It brought in Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt was the trained by his uncle, who was the chief of the Confederate Intelligence Service in London as a British agent. So you have the presidency of the United States by assassination is turned over from a patriot to, a, to an enemy, Teddy Roosevelt. This derailment of the Lincoln legacy in the United States ensured that Edward Albert, now King Edward VII, would meet no resistance from the U.S., in 1904, by preying on the continuing Germanophobia connected to the Dreyfus Affair and a humiliating defeat of the French army by the British at Fasoda, Edward and his French agents rammed through the Entente Cordiale Agreement with France. The pivot of this friendship treaty included binding commitments for collaboration in future war. On the other side of Eurasia, Britain's other new subject, Japan, was poised to launch another war this time against Russia. The Japanese emperor had signed an Anglo-Japan treaty in 1902, the central feature being that in the event of a Japanese-Russian war, Britain would prevent other European powers from aiding in Russia's defense. With the green light thus on, British banks had increased loans to Japan for arms and warship production. As the Entente Cordiale was being finalized, Japan launched a devastating sneak attack on the Russian naval station of Port Arthur, foreshadowing the Pearl Harbor attack 37 years later against the United States. By 1905, the Japanese war against Russia had achieved its objective. 
The Russian nation was crippled. Only one capital ship remained in its navy. The resources of the country were exhausted. After the peace treaty, arbitrated by U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt, a revolution was run against the Tsar, further weakening his ability to govern. The optimistic vision of Russian leaders like Sergei Vita for a tramway of iron rail girding the world had been replaced by the bleak practicalities of war and British balance of power games. Shortly thereafter, King Edward bestowed the most noble British order of knighthood, the Royal Order of the Garter, on the Japanese Emperor, an order so esteemed it was only possessed by the king and 25 knights around him. The summer of that year, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany and Tsar Nicholas II of Russia met on a yacht in the Baltic Sea. The Tsar feels a deep personal anger at England and the king. He called Edward VII the greatest mischief-maker and the most dangerous and deceptive intriguer in the world. I could only agree with him, adding that I especially had had to suffer from his intrigues in recent years. He has a passion for plotting against every power of making a little agreement, whereupon the Tsar interrupted me, striking the table with his fist and saying, Well, I can only say he shall not get one from me. And never in my life against Germany or you. My word of honor upon it. Tsar Nicholas of Russia would not keep his word of honor for long. Within two years of this discussion, in 1907, the Tsar signed a war alliance with King Edward's Britain, arranging Russia in a triple partnership with France and Britain against Wilhelm's Germany. The very trap Nicholas had sworn to his cousin he would avoid. In the absence of Otto von Bismarck, no one remained to prevent King Edward's orchestration of a nightmare of coalitions for war. Coincident to arranging this series of horrifying developments, King Edward VII was maintaining perhaps the warmest correspondence between an English monarch and a U.S. president in history. Edward wrote Teddy letters about how the two of them had been placed in command of the two great branches of the Anglo-Saxon race, while Teddy responded that, the real interests of the English-speaking peoples are one, alike in the Atlantic and the Pacific. As president, Teddy Roosevelt shut down McKinley's Pan-American Rail Project. He created East India Company-inspired conservation parks, denying settlers access to land intended by Lincoln for development. And he walked softly with a big stick all over the Monroe Doctrine, turning the U.S. from the enemy of empire in the Western Hemisphere to its leading friend. With the post-Civil War power of the U.S. thus chained to British interest, the last fateful steps to the ignition of war were lit in the Balkans. What the British want to do is take an area where there's a, a confluence of division. You have Roman Catholic, Serbian, the Orthodox churches, you have some Muslim elements, it's all the leftovers of the Ottoman Empire and the conflicts of the Ottoman Empire. And the British view is we can foment conflict virtually at the drop of a hat in these places. In June of 1914, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Archduke Ferdinand, rode through Sarajevo, Bosnia, and was assassinated by an anarchist. Predictably, the Austrians reacted by declaring war on Serbia. Tsar Nicholas II mobilized to defend the Serbs, and so, likewise, the German, French, and British entered the conflict. 
the Great War, whose fuse had been burning since King Edward's ouster of Chancellor Bismarck, went off. Indeed, the war just started because the war started. There was no reason for this war to start. Everything was in place. There was a buildup of conflict. Every side went up more of their military capability. Orders were going out. And at a certain point, the armies were on the move and nothing could stop them. And war broke out. But this was a British plan to set this in motion. This is what happens when you have inadequate leadership. William II was, was a terrible emperor in Germany. Nicholas, Tsar Nicholas of Russia, was an incompetent. The French government was incapable of addressing the broader strategic questions. They were all putty in the hands of the British manipulator. The British wanted World War I to destroy continental Europe. And you look at the, the incredible numbers of people who died on the battlefields fighting over a couple of square miles of land. And you see what a tragedy is about. And really, the key to this is Europe is destroyed and demoralized. Because the idea is, how did this happen to us? We're supposed to be civilized. We have science. We have parliamentary democracies. We have culture. And we, we, we engage in a meat grinder where people are slaughtered over inches of ground for four years. And nothing could stop it. And this is a war that was fought for no reason. People really know that. In 1915, President Woodrow Wilson brought the United States into the war on the side of the British Empire. An avid Ku Klux Klan supporter, Wilson's election had been made possible by Teddy Roosevelt, who ran a third-party Bill Moose ticket in 1912, seeing enough votes from incumbent Republican William Taft to secure Wilson's victory. Under somebody like McKinley or his successors, the U.S. probably would have stayed out. But under... Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, based with the history tied to the Confederacy, the United States ultimately comes in on the British side. And it becomes a decisive factor. The 24-year-long orchestration of World War I by King Edward VII thoroughly shattered the possibility of ending the empire. In Europe and Asia, each nation which had embraced the American system in the wake of Lincoln's assassination had been roped into destroying itself. In the United States, the Lincoln legacy was all but lost, with Woodrow Wilson closely tying the U.S. to support of British imperial interest for the post-war world. The British Empire itself, now more in control of world politics than possibly ever before, positioned itself to eradicate the potential of the Lincoln legacy to arise again by moving for the permanent eradication of sovereign nation-states. For this, the deceased Edward VII's policy of steering nations into self-destructive conflict with one another would be continued but around new figures such as H.G. Wells, who had served as the director of British intelligence during World War I. Wells and his collaborators began immediately to sow the seeds for another great war, this one to wipe away nations and pave the way for government. Wells was a particularly nasty, evil, but very intelligent guy. And so uh, in both his literary writings, his novels, his short stories, and then in his non-literary, non non-fiction writing, particularly his open conspiracy, what Wells laid out is the idea that 
you have to create world government, world empire under British domination. This is an independent, sovereign state. Yeah, talk about that. We don't discuss it. We don't approve of independent, sovereign states. You don't approve. We mean to stop them. That's war, if you will. Well, I think we know how we stand. The British foreign policy for Germany in the post-war period reflected the exact aims of Wells's policy. The Versailles Treaty of 1919, imposing nearly all of the post-war reparations on Germany, meant an undoing of all of Bismarck's previous successes and a dissolution of Germany as a sovereign country. At gunpoint, the most productive agricultural land and natural resources were seized. Ships, locomotives, and half of the nation's goals were taken away. Social programs were eliminated, industries privatized, and vicious waves of speculation unleashed on the Deutschmark. The Reichsbank desperately printed mountains of currency in the vain hope of covering the unpayable debt leading to the hyperinflation crisis of 1923. The British had finally reconquered Germany. In Southwest Asia, the same policy was pursued. Secret negotiations of the British Arab Bureau and French Foreign Ministry had created the Sykes-Picot Accord, which mandated British control of the Palestine, Transjordan, and Iraq region, and French control of Lebanon and Syria. Still to this day, the manipulation of religious and ethnic tensions to create wars in this region echoes back to this repositioning of empire. In the United States, the same banks and cartels dismantling the German nation positioned themselves for similar actions against the already weakened American system. J.P. Morgan's bank, located at 23 Wall Street, had been established as the American arm of a British bank and steered as an insurrection into American finance since the 1860s. By the 1920s, the House of Morgan operated more akin to a cartel than a bank, with no public function and a board which reached into thousands of American companies, industries, and utilities. The hand of Morgan was known to be monarchical in the land of American finance, only subsumed in power by the British Empire he was acting for. It was this vast financial network which would take over the political parties, install a series of London and Wall Street-controlled presidents like Calvin Coolidge, and advise the dismantling of the American system. By 1928, John J. Raskob, a J.P. Morgan asset who had built his fortune through insider speculation, rose to prominence in the Democratic Party. Raskob lent the bankrupt Democratic Party more than $300,000, nearly erasing their debts. Raskob was then appointed chair of the Democratic National Committee, where he exerted powerful influence over the party's politics. Controlling things on the Republican side of the aisle was another J.P. Morgan agent, Thomas Lamont. Lamont was a financial liaison to both Imperial Japan and Mussolini's Italy. In 1925, when Mussolini's party was nearly bankrupt, Lamont came in with $100 million of J.P. Morgan money to bail him out. This same Thomas Lamont also provided daily consultation to the U.S. President Herbert Hoover. In October of 1929, the rampant speculation of the 1920s culminated in Black Friday. It was the 1920 collapse. And the collapse amidst a, a period of dominated by euphoria. Oh, you can't beat the system. This is our system. Everything is fine. You can't beat the system. So like the boomers today, you know, can't beat the system. Well, we go along with it. We go along with it. That's the system. 
We learn to live with the system. We live within the system. We adapt to the system. We're going to be successful. We're going to make it. The financial crash on Wall Street spread throughout the economy as a whole. And so you had not only massive unemployment through the collapse of the entire industrial and agricultural base of the economy, uh, but you really were headed into the direction of real social despair bordering on social chaos. Well, the shock was great. But then 1930, 31, 32, 33, it was a horrible nightmare for them. People, you'd see them, the crowds waiting on the soup kitchens to eat at breakfast in Manhattan, lined up, dressed of people who had been considered themselves well-to-do in the previous time. Now they are with their top hats, their suits, and so forth. They're out there in the street, practically begging for a meal. Like this was, this is a very dangerous period. This was the period when there was an effort by the... Uh, the Morgan interest to put a fascist government in power in France around Pierre Laval. This was the period of the Spanish Revolution when the fascist regime of Franco was put in. Hitler was in power. Mussolini was in power. There was a pro-fascist movement in Britain centered around Lord Beaverbrook, which was moving to take over Great Britain. And there were bankers on Wall Street who supported this including the grandfather of our current president. Prescott Bush was working through the Harriman interest to fund Hitler. Through these networks and directed on the ground by Reich Bank President Yalmar Schacht, millions of dollars were injected into the Nazi party. By January, German President Hindenburg was pressured to put Hitler in as the chancellor. And by February 27, 1933, the Reichstag building was set on fire by a Nazi party member. The Nazis blamed this on the Communist Party and then used the fear inspired by the events as a pretext to give Hitler emergency dictatorial powers. The economic crash in the United States had snowballed into widespread hunger, bankruptcy, foreclosures, and 25% unemployment. People were not in a position to pay attention to the ominous rumblings abroad. Yet interest in the coming elections was unprecedented. Voters fervently hoped to find a leader who would, against all odds, turn them away from despair and restore the nation to prosperity. As the Democratic Convention neared, the Raskob-directed Democratic National Committee would go to extraordinary lengths to win the presidency. Their only opposition lay with a Democrat named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The party rules at the time were that the candidate to be nominated needed two-thirds of the delegates to win. Franklin Roosevelt had slightly less than that. Only a few states needed to join to his side, and he could win. The method that was plotted against him by the DNC was to keep the votes separate through as many ballots as possible until the delegates would break form and the convention might end up in a deadlock where the party would elect a compromise candidate of the DNC's choosing. They have various candidates available, any one of whom would have been acceptable as long as it wasn't Franklin Roosevelt. Their idea was that if they could string it out through four, five, six, seven, or eight ballots, that they could eventually convince supporters of Roosevelt that he couldn't make it, they should drop their support for him, and they could bring in a, a candidate acceptable to the Morgans. To ensure none of the delegates broke for Roosevelt, 
His opponents created a chaotic atmosphere at the convention. They paid street thugs to come into the convention and boo any time Roosevelt's name was mentioned. They ran the media of the city to be anti-Roosevelt to create a fog of confusion. They even went to the extent of pressuring Roosevelt's delegates to break from him while they ate at restaurants and while going to their hotel rooms in the interim hours of the convention. Indeed, Roosevelt did not get enough on the first ballot, the second, or the third. In each vote, he made only small gains. Campaign manager Howe and Roosevelt both knew that if at any point he lost votes, he would be out. When the fourth vote comes up, and they, uh, Roosevelt's in direct communication with Howe and Farley, and basically their idea is they've got to get it on this roll call. A mysterious telegram began to circulate at this point of the convention, a telegram intended to disorganize the Roosevelt delegates. The way out of danger of a deadlock is not only open, but it is attractive. For all through these various delegations, there is an astonishingly strong, though quiet conviction that the party can unite on a man who is stronger than any of the leading contenders. That man is Newton Baker of Ohio. Roosevelt responded to this effort to demoralize his supporters by sending his own telegram from Hyde Park, New York. I am in this fight to stay. This is a battle for principle. A clear majority of the convention understands that it is being waged to keep our party as a whole from dictation by a small group representing the interests in the nation which have no place in our party. My friends will not be misled by organized propaganda, by telegraphs now being sent to delegates. Stick to your guns. It is clear that the nation must not and shall not be overridden. Now is the time to make clear that we intend to stand fast and win. of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another a decent respect requires that they declare the causes which impel them to the separation we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal 
that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to establish new government. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, do and with the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved of all allegiance to the British Crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. In the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.